it was a sunny Saturday um, that day. I remember that it was not raining that day, but we had had an incredible amount of rainfall. I mean, just really downpouring for days um, that March. And so, um, but it had, it had stopped. This is Ashley Bryson. I am the branch manager of the Darrington Library. Darrington is a small town in northwest Washington state. So our library is part of a system of libraries that includes 22 branches. So we have a delivery driver who comes and picks up books and drops off books that are shared um, with all of the branches. The date was March 22nd, 2014. On this morning, I asked him, you know, if he would open the truck back up and take these bins that were taking up too much space in our back room. And so he opened the truck back up and it was only probably five minutes, but he was the second car before the slide. So there was only one car in front of him. Um, So his name was Tony and um, he's like, you probably saved my life that day. At 10.37 a.m. on this particular sunny Saturday, a massive wave of earth crashed down on the tiny community of Oso, Washington, right next door to Darrington. So we lost power, we lost internet. And then we started getting these reports about the slide, not just from the delivery driver who had turned around and come back to the library because the road was blocked. I initially thought, no big deal, right? They'll get this cleared. Um, Well, so throughout that day, um, more and more stories started to trickle in, and and they were really awful stories about, you know, seeing um, body parts in the mud and, um, you know, seeing people's homes and hearing cries for help and... Um, So these were the stories that we were hearing from locals. A nearby hillside, 650 feet high, had collapsed. In just a few minutes, an entire neighborhood was just gone, buried under 70 feet of silt and sand and clay and rocks. The Oso landslide, as it's now known, killed 43 people out of a community of just 180. It was the deadliest landslide in American history. This month marks the third anniversary of the Oso landslide. So today we decided to take a look at the science of predicting these kinds of disasters. What causes landslides? And how can we know when they're going to happen? And with Oso in mind, could we do a better job of seeing them coming and saving lives by looking for them from space? I'm Dr. Michelle Thaller, and this is Orbital Path, a show from PRX about the cosmos and our place in it. what happened in Oso, you have to understand landslides. Every landslide has two major ingredients, land on a slope and water. So the Pacific Northwest is landslide country. This is David Montgomery. He's a professor of geomorphology at the University of Washington. Geomorphology is uh, the science of the study of Earth's surface features, sort of the dynamics that form them, the shapes that they take, and how our actions influence them and how uh, their shapes, forms, and dynamics influence both human societies and ecological systems. He's also an expert on the geomorphology of the Oso landslide. After the Oso landslide, I was asked to join the uh, geotechnical extreme event reconnaissance team that was supported by the National Science Foundation, trying to catalog and preserve evidence of what actually happened on the site, sort of the geological evidence. So it's a little bit like a scientific SWAT team that would come in and gather data, share it freely in case there are lessons that could be learned that would help 
minimize the impact of things like that in the future. And even for a disaster expert like Montgomery, the Oso landslide wasn't a normal investigation. It was one of the most difficult places to work emotionally that I've ever worked. Um, I've worked in you know, volcanoes, uh, big rivers, floodings. But the Oso landslide was one where it was kind of hard to separate in my own mind that this is a geological problem and it's interesting in its own right in terms of what happened. Because when you're walking along at that site, you know what happened there and you find pieces of um, debris that you know that they belong to people, that this was a community that is no longer there. It was really hard to actually walk around and, um, and work on the site in the aftermath. It was also really hard for Montgomery and his team to pin down exactly why this landslide happened when it did and why it was so huge. It's kind of moot because the hill's gone. There's that, that evidence no longer exists to look at. Um, we do know that when the middle section of this slope failed down onto the lower part and triggered the debris avalanche that was so damaging, that that happened really fast. It traveled at great speed across that valley. There was essentially no warning. It all happened incredibly fast. The landslide moved at 40 miles an hour. It was so loud and so sudden, people said they thought a plane had crashed. Could there have been signs that something was coming in the, the days or weeks ahead of time had it been monitored? That's what's sort of unknowable at this point. This is the thing that makes landslides so challenging. Monitoring hillsides is very, very difficult. It's really hands-on. You have to kind of wire up a mountainside with rain gauges, water, a whole bunch of sensors that have to be installed at different depths inside the slope itself. And because monitoring requires a lot of equipment and labor, it's just not something that can be done easily at scale. The U.S. Geological Survey currently monitors 12 sites in five states. But there are many, many more places around the country that are prone to landslides. Now, the Oso Slope was not monitored. But here are some of the things scientists do know about that landslide. It had rained for 45 straight days before that hillside collapsed. And 12 days earlier, there was a tiny earthquake a few miles away. And what's more, the area had a history of landslides. In that particular slope, the, the base of the slope, that had been modified by both previous landslides, uh, by long-term river erosion and recent human activity. And there had been logging that had occurred back in the, you know, the 1940s and 50s when the old growth was cut off the site, which may have reactivated sliding that then led to a series of slides that culminated in the 2014 tragedy. So, you know, the context is kind of everything when you are looking at the potential for a landslide on any particular piece of ground. And knowing its past history of failures is a big piece of that, because once, once a slope has slid, that slope will be more prone to failure in the future because it's weaker. It had failed in the, in the 1950s, it failed again in the 60s, it failed again in the 90s. I mean, what was different in 2014 was the style of failure, which had to do with the mechanics of the way the slope actually fell apart. In addition to rain and steep terrain, we know that earthquakes, fires, a history of previous landslides, deforestation, even the building of roads, these are landslide factors too. But again, they're really hard to quantify. It's very hard to get all the data you need to be able to make a prediction. And this, of course, is where satellites come in. It turns out they can provide this bird's eye view that can track in almost real time a lot of the factors that can cause landslides. And that could be a big deal. 
landslides may be more common than we think. The Oso landslide was catastrophic. It was heartbreaking to see the devastation it brought to that small Washington community. And it was also a really unusual thing to see here in the United States. But in other parts of the world, devastating landslides aren't such a rarity. They happen largely in places with, you guessed it, lots of rain and steep topography. And they are very destructive. Solid numbers are hard to come by, but it's estimated that landslides kill about 9,000 people each year, mostly in South Asia, South America, and the Caribbean. So predicting them would be a huge leap forward. Earthquakes have a global seismic network. Um, you know, hurricanes have a series of satellites around the world that are all looking at storm tracking, and so they can provide forecasting. Um, and other disasters have similar type warning or at least monitoring systems, and landslides don't have that. This is Dahlia Kirschbaum. She's a research scientist at NASA's Goddard Space Flight Center outside of Washington, D.C. And she has been working to find a global solution to an inherently hyper-local problem, monitor landslides, from space. What we're trying to do is really use all of the different Earth observation data, kind of harness what we understand from observing, um, observing it from a remote perspective to look at where and when landslides may be happening around the world. So talk to me about how you observe landslides from space or how you observe what's going on to know where, you know, which areas are more at risk. What are the advantages of having a view from space? There's so many areas of the world, even in our country, that we don't have observations from the ground. So, you know, if take rainfall, for example. You know, rainfall is the largest trigger of landslides around the world. But if you take all the rain gauges in the world and you put them together, they only fit into two basketball courts. And that's even a problem in our, you know, in our mountainous regions where we don't have, you know, radars that actually can look all all the way through what's happening. And so, for example, with, with rainfall, if you look at what amount, what duration of rainfall causes landslides in different parts of the world, you can use data from space to try to figure that out. And that's something that, you know, we can't get from just a single rain gauge on the ground. Um, and then bringing in other information um, that we've been able to obtain from satellites, like how steep the topography is, you know, how, you know, where are we getting the most landslides? Obviously, they happen where we have a steep slope for the most part. Um, and then we can also look at what's happened with our land cover. So if, if an area has been deforested or or if there's been a fire, you know, all of that information can be observed from satellites and gives very important clues into um, the potential for landslide activity around the world. And with the satellite, the Earth observing system, we can actually look at that to an extent in real time or near real time. And so not only can you understand what, you know, what's happened in the past, but you can really look and provide emergency responders with improved what the disaster community calls situational awareness for these types of hazards. In other words, satellites give you a kind of bird's eye view of all these different factors that contribute to landslides. But you have to understand how all those things work in concert. And that means Dahlia needed to create a model. So as a scientist, you take data from these multiple satellites and, and ground-based measurements as well, and you feed things into a computer, is that right? Mm -hmm. And then the computer looks at all of these different things. Yeah. And your job is to put it all together mm -hmm. and create this model. Yeah. So the Southern Landslide Identification Project, or SLIP, is something we've been experimenting with. Um, essentially, it looks for signatures of where landslides might have occurred. So it looks at, you know, was there vegetation that's green and now it's brown? Um, is the slope steep? We get that from other satellite data. And is there moisture? Um, and so from, you know, combining that different information, it actually can give a semi-automated, you know, perspective on potential areas of landslide activity. 
Um, the other model that we've been developing called the Landslide Hazard Assessment for Situational Awareness, LASA, I know, we have a lot of acronyms at NASA. <laughs> um, it doesn't look at the visible where a landslide might be happening, but it actually looks at what are the conditions that might cause a landslide. So rainfall and slope and roads and, and, um, and soil type, et cetera. And so what's cool is that together you can actually see kind of where we might expect landslides based on, you know, where and when from satellite data. And then you can also see if we did see them using this slip model. You know, what we're trying to do with this global model is to really figure out potential landslide activity around the world in near real time. So every 30 minutes, this model updates with the most recent rainfall, looking at the slopes, looking at the land cover, looking at the road networks, looking at the soil types. And it's meant to give a very big picture estimation of what's happening. Groups like the Pacific Disaster Center send out um, alerts and, and uh, information to you know 200 countries looking at different or more looking at um, different types of hazards and landslides are not represented they don't have these type of global systems and so while what we're doing is very much preliminary we're trying to build that international awareness of you know where and when might landslides be happening and um, and so that is the effort that we're trying to to work towards and ultimately get into the forecast so using forecasted rainfall data where may landslides happen in the you know 24 to 48 hours well, of course I mean I think that's it's sort of a misperception of scientists that we don't care about such things right I mean I mean yes I mean we, we want to model landslides and we want to explore Mars we want to do these things but it, it does come back to what the human impact is and you know when I started uh, investigating earth science because i'm an astronomer i don't know much about nasa's earth science program i was i was amazed that there are people that are working on things like food security and famine prediction and uh the idea of of course modeling hurricanes and and, and storms and all of this stuff and now landslides and it, it does come back to how does this relate to us to our lives to make our lives safer and better i mean yeah that that really is the, the end all of the research absolutely i mean i think how we as scientists and how the community is able to use data that's developed from, you know, platforms that are funded by the by the taxpayers, right? So, you know, at the 10,000 foot level, we have all these satellites orbiting Earth that we have so much data, but how does it benefit people on the ground? So if you take the example of the Global Precipitation Measurement Mission, when it launched, the day the satellite data was produced, it began to be um, used by hurricane modelers to get a better sense of where and when hurricanes may be, where they might be going, how intense they might be getting. And literally day one. So it affected, you know, it helped us to improve the hurricane season. We need to be clear, though, the goal of monitoring landslides from space is largely still a scientific effort. Kirschbaum and her team are just starting to get to a point where they can predict landslides. One day in 2014, during a test of her LASA model over Central America, there were 14 landslides reported in Nicaragua. Kirschbaum's model predicted 13 of them. But right now, her models aren't perfect. They can point to a hillside and say, we think this looks like trouble. The next step is to let local authorities know, who then decide whether or not to raise the alarm. Sometimes the predictions are right. Sometimes they aren't, but it's better than not looking at all. This landslide model is open source and we can give it out to anyone who wants it. My hope for this system is that it's used as a framework that other countries, other groups, disaster preparedness groups can take and actually use their own regional data or use satellite data in conjunction with their regional data to 
improve their warning systems for landslides because NASA doesn't do warnings for landslides at all. But if we can give them the tools to then make their own decisions about susceptibility, about rainfall, that is very powerful and that has the opportunity to save lives. It's very much trying to set the, the set of tools that could be used for others to, to make informed decisions about evacuations and warnings and saving lives. I think it holds tremendous possibility. Back to David Montgomery, our University of Washington geomorphologist. And so I see a real high potential for what you might think of as partnerships between these remotely sensed methods that can cover with new technologies sort of large areas and sort of expand the, the, the number of eyeballs, if you will, on the terrain. And then also the old-fashioned field approach of going out and walking the ground and trying to see what is actually happening and getting the insight that you can't get from space, which is what's the third dimension, what's below the ground, what's actually happening at depth on that slope. Montgomery says that what people do with that information is up to them. And it's not for him to say whether or not people should continue to live in places like Oso that are prone to landslides. I, I think it's a virtual certainty that more pieces of the slope at Oso will slide in the future. Whether that particular slope will slide as catastrophically as it did in 2014, I think you may be waiting a long time for that to happen. But there's lots of other places around the, the mountainous west where the potential for sliding may be real, but there's also questions of should a community have been built there. Once you start answering that question, you've completely shifted into the world of policy, right? What's the, what's the best decision to make for society? For me as a scientist, what, I, what I'm very comfortable saying is that for my money, I would like people making those decisions to have the best information possible when they make them so that they can make intelligent, informed decisions. And if they want to run a risk, is it my job to tell them not to? Uh, well, no. Um, would it be my job to sort of advise them of what those risks may be to the extent that I can as a scientist? I would say yes. But, you know, what's an acceptable probability of a catastrophic event? Ashley Bryson, the Darrington librarian, says that people in the valley know the risks of living near Oso. But it's a beautiful place, and people have lived there all their lives. And it's hard just to pick up and leave your home. My home is very close to the same river that was um, that the slide went over. And so there was um, a person who lived down the street from me who picked up all their belongings um, because they were certain that the river was going to flood um, because it had been blocked by the slide. And it, it did flood. It didn't back up quite as far as my house. My home is five miles from the slide as the crow flies. Um, but it didn't end up backing up that far. But um, he never moved back. He, he just grabbed all his belongings and um, and I've never seen him again. So there was definitely some people who just made up their mind that um, it's not worth it to um, to live in an area that is subject to slides like this. But I think that um, our remote location really contributed to um, this community's ability to respond on a local level to this disaster using their their care and their connection to one another it was a small town at its best 
I wish I could paint that picture for you. And it was an incredibly sad time here, and it still is. I mean, every time it comes up, we, you know, when we were just talking about it after I initially spoke with you, um, you know, my coworker and I were in tears. I mean, that's just that's just what happens when you talk about it. And you know, maybe the next generation will be less affected by it, and maybe the generation after that can drive through there and not, um, you know, have the strong surge of emotions. Um, but it really showed me um, the caliber of the people who who live here, and um, I am so impressed. I'm so impressed by these people, and anyone who wants to say, oh, um, you know, backwoods, blah, 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 I think are really um, missing, they're, they're missing who these people really are. Stars has been commanded by Justin O'Neill. Andrea Mustaine edits. John Barth and Genevieve Sponsler co-pilot from the PRX Mothership. We're supported by the Alfred P. Sloan Foundation, enhancing public understanding of science, technology, and economic performance. More information at sloan.org. There's a new public radio initiative called Tripod to increase podcast awareness. Most people don't listen to podcasts. You're among the minority. So, If you have a friend or loved one who you think would be interested in our podcast, or any podcast, tell them about it. Show them how to listen to podcasts, and then tweet about it using the hashtag Tripod on Twitter. That's T-R-Y-P-O-D. There are also some great recommendations for podcasts for your own listening pleasure there, too. And if you're interested in how humans and the Earth interact, Dr. David Montgomery's new book is just out, called Growing a Revolution, Bringing Our Soil Back to Life. And as always, you can hear more of our shows at orbital.prx.org. I'm Dr. Michelle Fowler, a little bit of dead stardust, signing off for now.